scripture reading today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 14, or sorry, chapter 6, verse 14, through chapter 7, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right. Thanks, Nathan. Um, you know, I think I might have shared a time or two, uh, one of my favorite recent movies that came out this year, maybe two years ago, uh, The Greatest Showman. I was a bit evangelistic about it for a week or two. Um, one of the things that I liked about it uh, was that there was a scene in the movie where you were rooting for P.T. Barnum's marriage. Uh, if you know the, the story, I don't think it's going to give away any kind of spoiler if you hadn't seen it. But, uh, but, but P.T. Barnum, the, the greatest showman, is, is traveling around with this uh, famous, amazing female singer. And so they're, they're on tour doing this traveling show. And there's this moment where they are, are alone uh, in a hotel room and they're sitting on the couch. And you just get this feeling, no. Don't, don't do it. it. It looks like that they're, they're maybe about to kiss, and you're just thinking, don't do it. And you're relieved when P.T. Barnum kind of comes to the senses, and he, and, he, and he walks out of the room, and you feel a, a measure of relief. And, and, and contrast that with, with another movie that, that y'all might be less familiar with. Do any of y'all remember the movie Ed TV with Matthew McConaughey? It came out in the late 90s. I don't know. Maybe you don't. Maybe you don't. Either way, here's the idea. Um, the, the, the idea of the movie was that it was kind of in the beginning of the reality TV craze. It wasn't the, the very first reality TV show or whatever, but it was when that kind of idea was starting to catch on. It was kind of bizarre. And Ed, the character played by Matthew McConaughey, was just kind of this average Joe guy. And they were going to do this TV show, or really just this TV channel. It was just going to be called Ed TV. And all they were going to do was just follow around Ed. And, and Ed was this real kind of, you know, innocent, naive, real likable character. Uh, and, and you contrast that with his brother, Ray. And his brother, Ray, played by Woody Harrelson, was just really obnoxious. And he was just kind of a jerk, and he was really easy not to like. And, and he was dating this girl, and he, and he was, they showed him with, because whenever Ed was around his brother, his girlfriend was there. And, and whenever you, you saw Ray, he was just obnoxious, easy not to like. So they're falling around Ed during Ed TV, and, uh, and, and one, there's a scene where, uh, where Ray's girlfriend is with Ed, and she's kind of crying and upset about how Ray's been treating her, uh, and then she says that one of the things that's really difficult is that she really likes Ed. 
And so, you know, this is Ed TV, right? So everybody's kind of glued in and you kind of get that feeling with P.T. Barnum and that female singer just like, are they, are they about to kiss right here? And so they, they show all these other people watching Ed TV, right? And, and when they show all these, all these people at home watching it in different phases of life at bars or at home or whatever, and they're all saying, kiss her, kiss her. Well, except for one guy, Ray is saying, don't kiss her, don't kiss her. And so anyway, but, and, and eventually they end up kissing and everybody, you know, celebrates. And so, so here's, why, here's why I bring this up. There, there's a distinction in, in these two movies. In one of the movies, you are led along to cheer for faithfulness. And faithfulness happens and you're, you're excited about it. That was what you wanted to happen. And then in another movie, you're led along to cheer for unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness in that movie is what you're wanting to see happen. And so we live in a world that tends to not cheer for faithfulness, right? We're not led along to believe that is the, that is the good or right or best thing to do. Uh, and, and to put it another way, we definitely don't live in a world that would cheer for holiness and, and that we would be led along to think that, that we're being cheered towards maybe unholiness. Even the word, like I almost feel weird saying, I want to talk about being holy today. And I feel like internally everybody's kind of rolling their eyes, just like, well, this is going to be lame, you know? And so, so what, what I want to do is I want to consider um, the, the, the reasons why we might be, have to, a little bit something to do with our view of what holiness is. In, in our world, generally, if we think about holiness, maybe, maybe not for all of us, but some of us, it might, it might be a bad look. You might think about like an uptight priest or, or pastor, uh, super strict parents, uh, maybe a, a weak, soft, overly nice Ned Flanders. Y'all know who Ned Flanders is? Don't worry about it. But anyway, or, or it might just be like kids who seem like they don't like to have fun, but they're really into the rules. And so when you think about holiness, you're not thinking like, yeah, that's something I want to be, be a part of. It, it's, it's somewhat unattractive. It's somewhat undesirable. So, so what I want to do today is, is, is I want to, uh, to, to, to move us to root for holiness, the way, that, the way you would root for faithfulness with P.T. Barnum and the greatest showman. I, I hope to, to, to study the scriptures in a way that holiness would seem desirable and unholiness would seem undesirable. And, and I, I want to say on the front end, uh, I'm going to go about this in a bit of an odd way, and, it's, and it might not make sense in, until the end when, when everything comes together. Uh, and it's going to seem like I'm not even teaching the text. Like we read a text, and, and I'm not going to get there to like the, the back end, but I haven't forgotten the text. I'm kind of setting the table to get there, and I think it will make more sense after we do some work to, to get there. And so, so what I want to do is I want to make a statement that's going to seem like it doesn't connect to what I'm talking about, but hopefully after I unpack it a bit, you'll, you'll see where it, where it makes sense. And it might even move you to be uh, more desirous towards holiness and, and unholiness to be more undesirable. So, so here's the statement that I think if we understand will change us and make us want holiness and make us not want unholiness. So here's the statement that's not going to seem to make any sense or be connected with what I'm trying to talk about or the passage. Here it is. Here's the statement. The temple is the bridge... From creation to new creation. And that's the whole idea today. The temple is the bridge from creation to new creation. So if we understand that, I think you'll understand why a Christian shouldn't date a non-Christian and certainly not marry one. And you'll understand why we want to engage the world with the gospel. We, we, we don't need to be one with the world. We need to keep a distinction from the world. 
So again, the statement, the temple is the bridge from creation to new creation. And as I unpack this, I'm going to talk about three things. It's all in that sentence. I'm talking about creation, new creation, and then lastly, I'm going to talk about the temple. I'm going to spend most of the time on the temple. Okay, so first, let's talk about creation. In the beginning, God created the world and everything in it. The, the, the crown of his creation was man, was Adam and Eve, right? Made in his image. And before the fall, we can assume that God was with Adam and Eve in a very real way, that he was like with them. There, there wasn't this big divide that he was actually with them in the garden. And one reason we, we can think that is because of Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. So go ahead and turn to Genesis 3, verse 8. And I, look, I, every now and then I'll do this. We're going to be flipping around a lot. Uh, and there's a storyline that goes through the Bible. And I hope for those of you who stick with Redeemer Church for a while, you recognize the storyline. Even with our kids in the kids' class, part of the things we're teaching them is a redemptive historical view of the Bible, that they would see that the Bible is one story that's pointing to Jesus, and they'd be able to put it all together. And so anyway, I hope over your time at Redeemer Church, you'll see how, this, how the Bible is telling one story. And so I want to highlight a theme here. Um, and so anyway, follow me here with Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. It says this, And they heard, this is Adam and Eve, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So from this, we can assume that it was normal for God to be among Adam and Eve, for them to be with him. He dwelt with Adam and Eve. He dwelt with man. And, and, and we get this because they heard his footsteps walking in the garden. So like if you hear footsteps, or you hear a door open, you probably don't think it's God. You probably think it's a person. And so they heard footsteps and they're like, well, that, that's God because he walks among us. So it's fair for us to assume that God dwelt with Adam and Eve in a very real and a very personal way. He was with them. So in the beginning, before the fall, there wasn't this cosmic divide of heaven and earth, but God was actually with man. Now look at uh, chapter 3, verse 22 through 24, because here's what happens. So we have the fall, right? Adam and Eve sin, and they turn away from God. And what God does is he exiles them from the Garden of Eden. So look at Genesis 3, 22 to 24. It says this, Genesis 3, 22 to 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out man and at the east of the Garden of Eden. And he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword there that turned every way to guard the entire, to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, that might provoke lots of questions I'm just not going to answer. The main thing I want to point out there was that the Lord drove Adam, or, or man, or Adam and Eve out from the garden, east of the Garden of Eden. So they were exiled. So in the beginning, God dwelt with man on earth. And there wasn't this cosmic divide of heaven and earth. God was very much present with them, so much so that they hear steps walking in the garden, they would assume it's God. So God was with man, dwelling with man. But after Adam and Eve sinned, they were exiled from the garden. They were exiled from dwelling with God. God would no longer dwell with man the way he did before the fall. And much of the Bible is about unsolving that problem. In the beginning, God dwelt with man, then he didn't. 
And, and the rest of the Bible and the work of Jesus is about bringing that back together to God dwelling with man. The problem that the Bible is out to solve after Genesis 3 is to get God and man back together where God can dwell with man. And, and we see that in the end of the Bible that it actually happens. That problem does get solved. And that leads me to my next point, the new creation. Now turn to Revelation 21. Verse 1 through 3. So we had Genesis in the beginning, and we're going to Revelation. Um, all right. Genesis, or excuse me, Revelation, uh, chapter 21, verse 1 through 3. says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a, as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. In other words, that problem got solved. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So look, the greatest thing about the new heaven and earth isn't that every day will be perfect. Isn't that the food will be amazing and that every scene will be a beach scene or a mountain scene or whatever. The greatest thing about the new heaven and earth is that God will dwell with man. And, and, and the greatest thing before the fall, in the beginning, the greatest thing before the fall wasn't that the Garden of Eden was super cool, though I'm sure it was, but the greatest thing about the garden before the fall was that God dwelt with man. So, in the beginning, God is dwelling with man in a very real way. They hear footsteps. That must be God. And in the end, Revelation 21, the new heaven and earth, God dwells with man. So we have the creation, God dwelling with man, and we have new creation, God dwelling with man. But what about this in-between part? D does God just not dwell with man anymore in that in-between stage? Well, there is a bridge of God's presence, of God's dwelling with man on earth between creation and new creation. And y'all know what that is, if you're paying attention? The temple is the bridge between creation and new creation. All right? So this is my, my third point, the temple. And we're not going to go this fast. This temple's going to be a little bit longer. So, so the temple, before the temple was the temple, it was the tabernacle. And what the tabernacle was, it was like a portable temple. So after God uh, 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 took his people out of Egypt and was taking them to the promised land, he had them to build a, a temple. And, and while they were journeying there, they built this. Uh, turn to Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 to 35. And a lot of the end of the, of the book of Exodus is about them building the tabernacle, how it, how it went up. And a lot of times it's referred to as the tent and so uh, I want you to notice what happens. Something really special happens when they finish building the tabernacle. In Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 to 35, it says this, Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 and 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Mo Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the the tabernacle. So God's presence filled the, t the tabernacle. And later we're going to see that, that this, this, this will be referred to as God dwelling with the people of Israel through the tabernacle. Now flip again over to 2 Samuel. It's going to go a bit further. 
In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see God, uh, well, we see a, a word from the Lord delivered to David about God's plans for David to build or to not build, or to, that God's going to build David a dynasty. But this conversation began with David talking about building God a house, meaning he was going to take this, this tabernacle that was, a, that was a tent and make it a, give it a permanent home with a temple. And look at what the Lord says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 5 and 6. He says this, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I, uh, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in, my, in a tent for my dwelling. So he's saying there that the tabernacle, that was the place of his dwelling. So the, part of the way that God dwelled with man on earth was through the people of Israel, and in particular, through this tent. There is this specific tent, the tabernacle, with really um, a distinct or really unique instruction on how to build it, and that's where God's dwelling place was on earth. But, but uh, actually, do this. Now flip over to 1 Kings. I know we're doing a lot. So, you know, I, I think I've shared this before, this kind of teaching and preaching. I feel like teaching is kind of feels more like a classroom, or like you just need to understand this stuff. And then hopefully preaching uh, will we'll stir your affections for Christ and move you to action. So hopefully preaching is coming. Maybe I don't ever get there, but I try to. So anyway, flip over to 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10 through 13. And, and in, this, in, in this passage, we're seeing that the tabernacle is being replaced with the temple. So David didn't get to build the temple, but Solomon did. And when they finished building it, look at what happens. It's so similar to what happened with the tabernacle. 1 Kings chapter 8. Verse 10 through 13. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell forever. So they finished building the temple. And like the tabernacle, the glory of the Lord fills it. Solomon describes it as an exalted house and a place for God to dwell forever. So one thing to note here, when we're talking about the temple or the, or the tabernacle, it has a specific purpose. There's a specific point to the tabernacle and the temple, and it's this. It's for God to dwell with man. That's the whole idea of a tabernacle. That's the whole idea of the temple, is that this is a place where God will dwell with man. Now, keep that in mind. Flip over to John chapter 2. And we're going to see another part of this idea of the temple, of what God is doing with the temple. In John chapter 2, verse 19, 19 to 21, Jesus says this. John 2, 19 to 21. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So Jesus says something insane here, right? This is crazy talk. Jesus is saying the temple, like there's a tabernacle, there's a temple, and Jesus is saying, now it's me. <laughs> you know, this is crazy talk. So you can see where they were like, this doesn't make any sense. But look, if you're paying attention, what's the whole point? What's the whole idea of the tabernacle and the temple? God dwelling with man. Is Jesus God? Yes. Where is he dwelling? With man. Sounds like the temple. 
Because it is. It's Jesus. Jesus is the temple. He is God dwelling with man. The whole idea of the tabernacle and the temple carries over perfectly into the person of Jesus Christ. And if you remember Isaiah 7, Matthew 1, who is Jesus? He is Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us, right? So it makes perfect sense that he's the temple. So here's the progression we see so far. The bridge of God dwelling with man between creation and new creation is this. There's the tabernacle, there's the temple, and then there's Jesus. And the last part is the craziest one of all. You know what the last part is? The tabernacle, the temple, Jesus, the, 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 the last extension of that bridge, it's us. It's the church. It's you and all your stuff, right? It's, this is God's plan. The temple is the bridge from creation to new creation. You are a part of that bridge of God's presence, God dwelling with man from creation to new creation. Look at 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. I meant to say 1 Corinthians. I know we're in 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Because this is explicit. There's no arguing with this. There's no different theories on this, that we are God's temple. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple? Pretty clear. And that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Paul is telling the Corinthians that they are the temple of God. Or to put it another way for us, the church is the temple of God, collectively and individually. You don't have to turn here, but in Ephesians 2.22, Paul says this, In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What's the church? Here's one definition. A dwelling place of God by the Spirit. The church is a holy temple. The, the church is the temple of this age. What the tabernacle was in Israel and what the temple was and what Jesus was, the church is that now in this age. Between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, the bridge of the presence of God, God dwelling with man, is the church. The bridge from creation to new creation is the church. The bridge of God's presence, God dwelling with man, from creation to new creation, it's us. Now, with that in mind, with the idea of you and me and us being God's temple, the place where God's spirit dwells, the place where he makes his dwelling known, let's pick up our text in 2 Corinthians, all right? I told you I was going to come back to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14 to 7, uh, to, to 7 verse 2. Verse 14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God, they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. The reason we should be 
holy is because we already are holy, right? We're God's temple, the place where his spirit dwells. And it would have been unthinkable to bring an idol into the temple. In the same way, it should be unthinkable for a Christian to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. And look, this is most often quoted, this verse about not being unequally yoked is most often quoted addressing the idea of Christians marrying or maybe even dating non-Christians. And and, and rightly so. Look, there there should be this distinction. And I want to talk about this for a little bit. Because look, if you're dating a person who is not a Christian, you just need to break up. I mean, the whole missionary missionary dating, of y'all probably heard of this, it's like, well, he's got potential. Potential means, well... Potential means he's not there yet, or she's not there yet. And so look, what this verse is saying is there is a distinction between Christians and non-Christians, and they shouldn't be unequally yoked. They shouldn't be married, and they shouldn't be married, they shouldn't be dating. And, and look, I'll, I'll go a step further. If you're dating a person that's li- that, that, doesn't, that says they're a Christian but doesn't act like a Christian, you need to break up with them. You just need to break up with them. Don't do missionary dating. Look, it's okay for you to date someone who's not as good looking as you thought you think they should be. That, that you might think they're blurry. It's okay for you to date that person. It's okay for you to date somebody who's a little quirky, maybe a little weird, got some kind of rough edges. It is not okay for you to date a non-Christian or someone for all practical purposes who might as well be a non-Christian. And if he or she is leading you astray physically, you're going further than you know you should go, that is a deal breaker. They're, then they're acting like a non-Christian. And do you think staying with that person will bring more blessing than obeying God? And look, maybe you do, then you're just as much of a problem as that person is. Your faith is in man and not in God. And throughout the scriptures we read, woe to him who trusts in man and not in God. So don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Quit justifying it. It's a big deal. And, And here's why it's a big deal. If it was just the two of you, that would be enough. That'd be bad enough. But it's much worse than it just being just the two of you. Because you're bringing Jesus into it. In 1 Corinthians 6.15, we read this. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? That makes sense now, right? Knowing that the Spirit of God is, is in believers, the dwelling place of God. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Look, you probably wouldn't hook up with someone in a church. It's church, right? You can't do that. But if you're a Christian, you are the church. You're the temple of God. And look, if you're a non-Christian or a weaker Christian who's leading a Christian astray in this area, then you need to watch out. When you mess with a Christian, you mess with that person, you're messing with God because that person is God's And did you catch that alarming phrase that I kind of read over in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17? says this, do you not know that you are the temple of, uh, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? We got that part. Here's the next part. It's kind of alarming. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. If you mess with a Christian, you're messing with the temple of God. And look, I know I'm talking about dating and sex and all that, but even beyond that, like Christians are, it's, it's a serious thing to mess with a Christian. Be mindful how you treat each other. This is the temple of God we're talking about. You would show more respect to this sanctuary than than you might a a real person who is the place where the Spirit of God dwells. And so the Christian's body carries great dignity 
And, and know that your body carries a dignity that you have not yet fathomed. You don't get the dignity that your body carries. And I mean your body. I'm not talking about your spirit. And look, all of us are, have some type of mild disappointment with our bodies, right? Our outer shell. But maybe the best of us is like 50% okay with how we look, right? But look, there's a sense where we got to see beyond that. We got to see beyond that outer shell and that the dignity that you hold is within, in your body is because it's the temple of God. It's where God's spirit dwells. The most important part of your body is this, is that it's the temple of God and it carries weight and dignity for that reason. You know, I think it was my freshman year in college. Uh, I was talking to some guys um, and uh, they, they were telling me about a fight that broke out. And what happened was they were, they were leaving the bar one night. They'd been drinking some and they were, they were passing by this church it was one of those churches, y- y- y'all probably seen a lot of times they'll put like a bunch of pumpkins out front. They're selling pumpkins. Um, and so anyway, so there's a bunch of pumpkins outside this church. And one of the guys says, hey, I'm going to smash them pumpkins. And the other guy says, I bet you're not. And so anyway, a little talk ensues and then a fight breaks out. And these are kind of good old boys, right? You know, the kind of guys that would, you know, drink a lot of beer, but you're not going to smash a pumpkin on the church property, Right. But look, here's a, so a fight did break out and all that, and I hear, hear the story. It's kind of funny, whatever. But anyway, here's, here's, here's what you need to catch here is, is that guy kind of got something. I mean, he kind of didn't. These two guys aren't like a pillar of what a Christian guy should be. But here's what they got that was right. Like, we don't need to mess with these pumpkins. These pumpkins are on church property. And so this person felt like they're, they're kind of connected to, to the church. Therefore, they're kind of connected to God. And so actually, if you try to smash these pumpkins, I'm going to come after you. And, and there was a fight. And so, look, so, so a bit misguided because the pumpkins were just pu- kind of pumpkins. But, here's, but, but here's, what, here's what he did get right, is that if something belongs to God, you don't mess with it. You don't take it lightly. You don't abuse it. You don't defame it in any way. And so for him, it gets silly. There's dignity with these pumpkins, I mean, kind of, right? But when we're talking about Christians, y'all, there really is. There is great dignity. And when you're interacting with other Christians, then they should be treated with, with the same type of, of sanctity and seriousness and, and just holiness that you would treat God's temple. If you could go back in time and you see the, the, the temple, the tabernacle, the temple filled with glory, then you would treat it with a sense of reverence and respect, right? And there's a sense where we are that temple as believers. And so, look, with that in mind, knowing that we are the temple of God, I'll end with this conclusion that, that, that Paul ended with. Since we have these promises of God dwelling with us, in us, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now look, I, I don't know what your issue with holiness might be. You know, maybe some of you are like I was saying in a dating relationship or whatever, where that might apply. Uh, many of you are not. But look, I'm, I'm sure there's an area of holiness. Maybe it's with what you watch, what you do, what you talk about. I, I don't know what it, what it might be. I'm sure there's something that in the Holy Spirit will, I'm sure, bring it to mind now or later. But with that in mind, with the great dignity we bear in our bodies, don't you want to root for holiness? That we wouldn't defame God's temple? That instead we would honor it for what it, what it is? So may we root for holiness and may we fight for holiness, and may we delight in the holiness that has already been given to us. 
Because we have been purchased by the blood of Christ, not just to be saved from hell or go to heaven, but we've been purchased by the blood of Christ to be God's holy temple, God's dwelling place, the bridge from creation to new creation. Let's pray. Father, it's crazy to read that in the same way there is dignity and honor in the tabernacle, the temple, and Jesus, that you have um, put that on us, your people, your church. And we know we're a mess, but we're encouraged because we've read 1 Corinthians. That church was a mess too. And so you and your great mercy through the work of your son on the cross have made it possible that fools like us could be the temple of God on earth. And so I pray that you would help us to repent from our sin, that you would help us to love holiness and to hate the sin that stains it. And so would you help us, Holy Spirit, bring things to mind that we need to turn from and work in our hearts and our imaginations to make us truly hate the sin that defames your temple. And Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.